Good morning. Yes, good morning. It's so good to be in person, inside with everyone. Okay, uh, we're gonna start something new today, and it's gonna be for six weeks. So pay attention, kids. Okay. All right. Some of you might know this already, and for some, it might be new. All right. Let's begin. Okay. So. You know, life is not always about things we can control, like this pandemic. Okay, but you see, in the book of Ephesians, the Bible tells us that yeah, sometimes life is not in our control, and being a Christian can be challenging sometimes, because the battle. To stay strong and faithful to Jesus can sometimes be a little harder than we think. Okay, but we have to, when we try to choose between what is、um, thinking about other people before ourselves, or when we have to try not to worry too much about like the pandemic and get too scared, we need to remember that God gave us. A complete armor to fight and to stay strong. So God tells us that God has given us what we need, not to be scared, but to be strong and courageous. So in the book of Ephesians, chapter six, we are told to remember that if we depend on God's power, not our own, then we can be confident. And the way to do that is to remember and to always imagine that God gives us a full, complete armor, so that we can feel prepared. We are fitted and we are trained up to fight any difficulty that comes our way. Now, you see, the apostle, apostle Paul knew very much about Roman soldiers and what they wore. Okay, so let me ask you: What is the function of a belt? Well, I'm going to tell you that、um, Mr. Enoch,、um, the pants he was wearing were got very loose on him, so he needed a belt to keep it up. Okay,、um, but what else does a belt do besides hold your clothes up, and then it holds your clothes and everything in place? It also is decorative, isn't it? It's stylish. Right, but I'm going to tell you that the kind of belt that Paul is talking about has a different kind of function, okay? Because a soldier in Roman times, the the belt, the belt was very different, okay? Now, what the belt showed, I'm going to put this on, what the belt. What the belt showed is that you belonged to Rome. You were an agent of Rome. Okay, it identified you. It told everybody what you were. And the thing is, of all the armor, it was the one thing that, by law, you could wear at all times. Okay. Because it identifies wherever you went, even with if you were not on duty and you went to the market, you still 
wore your belt. Everybody knew what you were because of that belt. Okay? And also, it was the piece of armor that you got to hang. I don't know if you, I don't know if you can see that, right? But you got to hang your weapon. Okay? So, when Paul mentions the armor of God, the first one he mentions is the belt of truth. Okay? The belt of truth. So the belt of truth tells you what is sure, what is the real thing, and the real thing that this belt of truth tells you is that you belong to God. You, Logan, are an agent of God. Okay? You have been sent by God. Okay? The most important thing to remember in the whole armor is who you belong to. You are sent to tell the good news of Jesus Christ. Okay? And this truth, the, that thing that you know, the thing that you know is that Jesus, that God so loved you that he sent Jesus to us. Okay? And if you can remember that, You know what happens? Okay. Jesus told all the faithful people. You know what he said to them? He said, if you obey my word, okay, if you obey my word, then everybody else, okay, everybody else will know that you are my disciple. And when you do that, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. If you can remember that you belong to God, that God called you to be a part of his kingdom, if you can remember this, then you are wearing the belt of truth. Okay? And you wear it on your waist. It holds everything together. So it says, gird yourself. Wear that belt of truth. Okay? Can you remember this one? The belt of truth. Okay? There are six pieces of the armor, and that was the first one. And it is the very important one. Everything hangs on the truth. Okay? All right, so can you open them? Shut them? Point them to your tooth. Open them, shut them. Lord, we love your truth. Okay? Open them, 
When to open them, shut them. <laughs> Give your hands a clap. Open them, shut them. Now fold them in your lap. Let's pray. God, you are the way, the truth, and life. Lord, we know that you sent your son to show us this. So help us to remember the truth of who you are, that you are God Almighty, and that you have this wonderful plan for this whole world, and you call us to be a part of that. And when you call us, you tell us to wear our belt of truth, knowing who you are and who we are. And you tell us to go out and to tell the world about your son, Jesus. So God, we ask that even on this Sunday, you would again send us out in truth, that we will go to school, we will do all the things at work, and we will remember this truth and go out and proclaim it. May everything we do hang on the truth of who you are and what you have done. So we thank you for this time. We pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Our scripture reading for today is Joshua chapter 5, verses 10 to 15. Listen now for the word of the Lord. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening, on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The word of the Lord.
The Lord be with you. Thank you. Um, it's great to see everyone. Uh, let's uh, pray together, shall we? God, we thank you again for this day that you have made. And we ask now, as we have gathered in your name, you would speak your word to us. And in the hearing of your word, help us to obey. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. So let me give you a little bit of background to our reading this morning. In the first four chapters of the book of Joshua, Joshua has sent out spies into the land, and after they have returned with a favorable report, the people cross the Jordan River just as the earlier generation had crossed the Red Sea. Remember that the Israelites had spent 400 years as slaves in Egypt, and then another 40 years wandering around in the desert until Moses and his entire generation died. And so now under the new leadership of Joshua, the next generation is finally crossing the river into the land that God had been promising their ancestors for generations. Once across, they set up a monument of stones so that it will prompt questions from the children of future generations. What is this all about? And seeing that stone mountain would then elicit questions and conversations and opportunities to retell the story of how God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt, had protected them through the wilderness, and had miraculously brought them into this promised land. Then in the first half of chapter 5, all the men undergo the rite of circumcision to symbolize they're re-coventing with God as they prepare now to settle in the land. I'm not sure if I should say this, but they name that place the Hill of the Foreskins because apparently hundreds of thousands of men underwent the rite together. This was done in preparation for the Passover, which they would celebrate, because according to the law, only those who were circumcised are allowed to participate. And God tells them, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. That is, they are no longer defined by their time of slavery in Egypt, but rather by their renewed covenant with God. And that brings us to our reading this morning. It is a time of transition. The people are about to shift from decades of wandering in the desert as, no, as a nomadic people and are about to become a settled people, people living in villages and towns and cities. As some scholars have noted, the people are moving from a period of exodus to a time of isodus. That's probably not a familiar word to you. Exodus is made up of two uh, parts, ex meaning out, as in uh, exit and hodos meaning way or road so exit uh, exodus is departure or a going out isodus has the same hodos at the end meaning way or road but the word the front part of it ice means in or into and so if exodus is departure isodus is entrance entrance it's the opposite of the exodus 
So people are not just leaving behind something, they are receiving something in its place. They are not just leaving behind a bad situation, they are not just getting out of slavery, but they are entering into a land flowing with milk and honey. It's salvation from as well as salvation for. God not only frees people from sin and slavery, but has plans for something good and better. God rescues from, but also liberates for, so that people can live into a life of freedom and joy. It's like, as you all know, you can't just try to leave behind a bad habit. You have to develop good habits as a replacement. It occurred to me this week that we are also in a time of transition, as I've been saying before, that we are also moving from a time of a kind of exodus and exile, from a time of being apart on Zoom and hybrid services into a time of regathering and exodus. That is, we are becoming more increasingly together for our shared times of worship and fellowship. We are moving out of a time of pandemic and into whatever new future we may face together. And so I thought I'd highlight three things from our reading today to keep in mind during the season as we transition back now into a shared service in person. First, we notice here that in preparation for their new life, they begin with a renewal of worship. The people celebrate Passover. The men undergo a rite of circumcision so that they can be eligible to worship. It's unclear how often or how regularly they celebrated the Passover during their time in the desert, but God gave very clear and repeated instructions about how the Passover was to be kept. So the people are not doing something special or extraordinary. It was a part of their regular life cycle that God had patterned for them in the desert. It just so happened that at the time of their entrance into the promised land, that it was the time of Passover, and so that that's why they are celebrating it. What's vital here is that they begin their new life in the land with their traditions of worship. For the people of Israel, the celebration of Passover defined who they were as a people. In the Passover, they define themselves, they recognize and acknowledge that they are a people whom God has rescued. They are those whom God delivered. They are those whom God redeemed, those whom God has saved. That they were the people of God was their most important and foundational identity marker. And the annual feast of Passover, just like the weekly Sabbaths, were reminders of this reality, that they belong to God, and that God is the one who had saved them. And our weekly Sunday services serve the same kind of purpose. When we remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, when we gather as the people of God for worship, 
when we declare and remember together God's creation and God's salvation, we remind each other whose we are and how we ought to live in light of that truth. In any group of people, it is the shared collective memory and rituals that binds them together. It's like a baseball team that goes through a championship season together or a group of college students who go through college together. When they get together later, they will look back on those times, those shared memories, retelling those stories, and through that, become even closer and tied together even more. And that's part of what worship does for us. It binds us in this collective memory of God and of what God has done for us. We retell the story of God and of our experiences with God. The generations that's now entering the promised land, they were not around when God created the heavens and the earth. They didn't know Abraham and Sarah or Noah or even Moses. They were either too young or weren't even born when God did all of his miraculous works in Egypt. Like us, they were not there for most of God's activity in the lives of his people. But in worship, in worship, they are reminded that it really happened and that they too are a part of that story, that their lives are continuing God's story of deliverance and recreation. Worship, and especially our shared worship together on Sunday mornings, are so important. And the reason we have to prioritize is because our lives, our very identity, is so fundamentally shaped by this time together. Secondly, we see that the day after worship, that the people eat the produce of the land because there is no more manna. This was a revolutionary change for the people. Exodus 16.35 tells us that the people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. For 40 years, for 40 years, God provided the miraculous manna for them. Can you imagine having a habit for 40 years? I know some of you aren't even 30 years, let alone 40. Can you imagine having food delivered to your front lawn every morning? I know you can with Uber Eats now and everything else, right? All they had to do was get out of their tent door in the morning and there it was, manna, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. For 40 years, they ate the same thing every meal, every day. Some of you older folks might remember a song by Keith Green called So You Want to Go Back to Egypt. In it are these lyrics. In the morning, it's manna hotcakes. We snack on manna all day. And we sure had a winner last night for dinner, flaming manna souffle. Moses seems rather idle. He just sits around. He just sits around and writes the Bible. Oh, Moses, put down your pen. What? Oh, no, manna again. 
Oh, manna waffles, manna burgers, manna bagels, filet of manna, manna patty, and here's my favorite, banana bread. As interesting as some of those meals might sound, it's doubtful that people really enjoyed eating the same thing every single day for 40 years. I mean, it's understandable that they would complain and say, God, give us something else to eat, right? I feel like it'd be the equivalent of drinking Ensure every day, uh, as some people have to do, to just get the basic nutritional and caloric needs met. Now, I know that some of you have a very high tolerance for monotony, and you're, you're good with eating the same thing for over a, a long period of time. But no matter, I was thinking, like, no matter how much I enjoy certain foods, if that was the only thing I could eat, like, every day for 40 years, I mean, four days in a row even, right? It's got to be hard. You've got to get sick of it. This was the kind of the common complaint I heard so often during the pandemic where people were saying, Every day seemed like the same thing, like the same routine, right? Like the Groundhog Day, like this repetition. People wanted variety. Well, the manna was not supposed to be permanent. It was not God's will for his people to eat the same thing every day forever. Deuteronomy 8 says this, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The manna was a blessing, but it was also a test, a reminder that one does not live by bread alone. The larger question for the people with the manna was would they trust God's word? Would they trust God's word that God would provide for them? And that's the same question that we have for every generation. Will we trust God to provide for us? To meet our every need. Now, when God sends you manna, there's no question that it's God who provided it, right? For 40 years, every morning, they had direct proof of God directly providing and meeting their needs. I know that many of you have had experiences in your life where it was crystal clear that it was God who was providing you with something, whether it was some miraculous healing or some unexpected forgiveness or last-minute check in the mail or in some other unmistakable way that this has to be an act of God. Manna was like that. It was an unmistakable sign of God's provision. And now what the people have to learn and have to remember, and what we also have to learn and remember, is that God's ordinary daily provisions are no less miraculous. It may not be as obvious as the manna, but God is 
continuing to provide for us. God led them into the promised land where they now have lands where they can farm and plant seeds and cultivate their own food. They will have to farm the land, so it's going to be more difficult. But God is still providing the way. In fact, it's a better way than getting manna every morning. Now, some people are going to think, you know, because I have to work the land, because I have to farm and, and I have to gather the crops, that it's all up to me. God's not around, so it's all on me and I'm responsible for it and it's all my doing. But they're forgetting that it's God who has provided what we would call these natural resources, natural provisions, that God is the one who is ultimately responsible for the sunshine and the rain and the plants growing into harvest. What we call regular or ordinary means that God has provided in the workings of the world, these natural or ordinary means of grace, even our ability to, to work or to understand how to raise crops, all of that are just as miraculous as the manna that God provided every day. The manna was never meant to be a permanent solution. It was a temporary measure until the people could get real food. And as they enter now into the promised land, they will have that opportunity. But I'm sure that there were many people who are very unhappy about that. They are going to be unhappy that the manna stopped. You get used to free food. You get used to just picking it up right in front of your door. Now, real food is going to require a lot more work. You have to go to the grocery store. You have to plant seeds. They will have to, as a people now, learn how to grow their own food. They will have to plant seeds and, and fertilize it and, and prune the bushes and other things that I don't know about. They have to farm, right? They, they have to grow their own food now. They will have to now spend a significant part of their day for food, which they did not do before. As I was thinking about this, it seemed to me that our experiences with online worship is similar to their experiences with manna. Zoom made it easier for many of us to become careless and lazy about worship. As I mentioned in the Wednesday Word, you can get up at the last minute, you can stay in your pajamas, you can lounge on your couch, you can make breakfast while you're listening to the worship service in the background. You can hide all of your multitasking and paying just a little bit of attention by turning off your video feed. It's easy to make the most minimal effort and call it worship. But when we do that, it does us no good. It sets a terrible example to the rest of our family, and it is not worship that is acceptable to God. A number of my clergy friends who uh, returned to in-person worship earlier 
have told me that members of their church are already longing for the days of remote worship. They want their manna back. They like the convenience of sleeping in and not having to do too much on Sunday mornings. They like not having to drive to church, not having to serve to help set up and to clean up afterwards. And it's not just the laity. I have one pastor friend who serves at a very large church and pre-COVID, uh, pre he had to preach four times in four different services. Since he went online, all he had to do was record one sermon Saturday night and they would just play that four times and he had the Sunday off. He loves it. Another told me she loves the fact that at the end of the Sunday online service, she can just turn off her video feed, just turn off the computer and doesn't have to deal with people who used to complain to her. Like the manna, which was supposed to be temporary, I think we are also in the danger of having gotten used to something that was never meant to be a permanent solution, that was not meant to be a replacement for worship. Online worship was a temporary fix while we wait to enter into the promise of real embodied worship. It's going to be hard for some of us to regather and to relearn how to worship and fellowship together. But that is the life to which we have been called to. It will require more work to have real food and real worship. But it's so much better for our souls. And so I would encourage all of you to join us as soon as you can. Third, we have to follow God. As the people are about to settle in the land, they're facing a mighty and fortified city of Jericho. And Joshua is getting ready for battle and he's probably scoping out the city. But then he meets this stranger with a drawn sword. And so he naturally asks, are you an enemy or an ally? Are you for us or against us? And I think this is the question that so many of us are asking these days. Are we not categorizing people into two mutually exclusive camps? Who's on my side and who's wrong? Whatever the issue may be, we've picked our side and convinced ourselves that God is on our side because we are right and they're wrong. We are the good guys. We are the ones with the truth. And they're wrong. The stranger's answer, I just find just, it's just a, such an incredible answer. He doesn't choose a side. Instead, he says, no. Are you for us or against us? No. I am the commander of the Lord's army. What Joshua learned and what we have to learn is that our task is not about getting God to join our side. Our task is to join God's side. 
It is not for us to claim God's allegiance to our cause, no matter how right you think you are or even if you actually are. I know that many people these days feel like they're in some sort of a war, a cultural war, political, spiritual war, and you're trying to choose sides and you're so convinced that your worldview is so right and that the others are wrong. And I know people are just having a really hard time understanding and communicating with other people. But we should tread very carefully when we claim God to be on our side. We should be mindful of Pascal's observation. Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. The question we need to ask ourselves is not whether God is on our side. Just as Joshua learned, we must instead learn to be on God's side, to ask his will and his plans, what he wants, and then humbly to bow down in obedience. When we submit to God, when we recognize that the battle belongs to the Lord, that whatever challenges we face then will not be quite so overwhelming. I can tell you that this is a needful reminder for me these days. I think I've been telling you that I've been facing some really difficult choices and challenges and conversations lately, and I don't know how to resolve most of them or even if they are resolvable. But when I turn to God, when I really begin to submit myself under his will, I can see that it's not up to me to fix everything. That not everything has to return to the way I think it should. I can slowly begin to see something bigger that perhaps God has in mind and that I ought to then get alongside of his work and if not, at least to get out of the way. You know, in the past month, uh, I've had the opportunity to um, sit in on a bunch of different uh, seminars and webinars and things like that. And many of them involve trying to understand uh, the divisions facing the country and the church. And I was struck uh, by a couple of people who shared a very similar piece of advice. During hard conversations about politics, about race and gender and everything else, the proposal was not to pick a side and figure out better strategies to convince and persuade them, others, to join you. Rather, the proposal is, how about we both choose to follow Jesus and see where he leads us? It, it sounds a little... I don't know, like when I say that, <laughs> it, it sounds like a cliche or just kind of a, a, some useless sentiment. But it's, it's really, I think, good advice. I think it's a good word for us. We choose to follow Jesus together and see where he leads us. It acknowledges our shared common commitment to Jesus Christ the bedrock of our being, and it acknowledges us that maybe we might be wrong. 
I might be right. You might be right. But we are both going to be open to correction. We are going to seek Christ together. Can we agree that Jesus is Lord and that we ought to follow him together in love and for one another? So as we hopefully come to the end of this season and enter into a season of recorporation, I invite all of you to follow Jesus with me together. Let's remember that God is in control. Let's remember that we gather together in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. Let's look forward to a time when there is no more manna, no more Zoom. Let's take off our pajamas, our earbuds, our sandals, and worship bodily together in one place. Please pray with me. God, as we hopefully are leaving the pandemic behind us, help us also to leave behind whatever laziness in worship behind as well. Help us to meet the challenges of worshiping with real people in a real space and to do so with patience and compassion. Help us now as we begin to regather to eat the real food of your presence, the real food of communion and fellowship. And help us to follow you together wherever you may lead. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Amen.